morning, everyone. Good to see you. Uh, Genesis 1 on page 1. If you've got a chair Bible beside you, that's where we're going to start. There's so much here. Admittedly, if you've been around at any time, you know this is clearly a hobby horse of mine, but I told you last week there'd be a few hobby horses trotting out. I think there's still so much more here we can see in Genesis 1 and And I wonder if every sermon could and maybe even should start here. So I'd love to start uh, with you this morning, Genesis 1. And I think it's important because how a story starts uh, determines, it shows you what kind of story you're in. And so if this is a story that you're evaluating, wondering, is this a story I would like to participate in? Important to pay attention to the beginning. Genesis 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be. Let's notice a few things. The earth. Uh, Hebrew, great phrase. Tohu wabohu. You want to try it out this morning? Let's take it for a test drive on the count of three. One, two, three. Tohu wabohu. Okay, you can pull that out anytime you want in conversation. Uh, tohu wabohu. And that just that describes the condition of the earth here as being, in our, in our English translations, formless, empty. Other, other places say wild and waste. So notice, we've got the earth, tohu wabohu, wild and waste. And then we've got the deeps. Darkness was over the deeps and the sea of course is full of danger and death and it can destroy human life but there's more going on than that it, the deeps especially in uh, mesopotamian cultures this was the place of chaos of primordial terror the source of evil really the source of every human fear the deeps so we've got the deeps the chaotic waters and we're noticing Oh, that's interesting. The spirit actually is moving towards the deeps and is hovering over the chaotic waters. And in that place, we're we're noticing the location, that's the place where God starts creation. That's interesting. So the first thing we see in scripture is God's creative capacity to work in the midst of chaos. And how does God create uh, you may have heard, this is another one of those weird words. God creates ex nihilo. Let's try it. Let's try that one too. Ex nihilo. I don't usually do this. This is my last sermon. I'm trying new things, I guess. Ex nihilo, which just means out of nothing. Something out of nothing, which is what we see in Genesis 1. We see a move from formless to formed, from dark to light, chaos to order, Nothing to something. This is ex nihilo creation, which you know whenever you've engaged in the creative act, whether as a parent or a scientist or an artist. Every act of creation in some measure is ex nihilo because you're making something out of nothing. It didn't exist before, and there it does. And so you know this as a painter where you're taking the raw materials of pigment and canvas Those materials existed, but that painting didn't. And you know this uh, with that spreadsheet 
that you worked on this week. You were working with materials that frankly felt like wild and waste. And you brought order out of chaos by synthesizing large data sets. You are a creative genius. Because I have no idea how you do that. Uh, or, or a Saturday morning's omelet. Heirloom tomatoes, mushrooms, and the amazing ex nihilo invention of cheese. Right? I mean, because somebody saw a possibility in, in bovine liquid in an udder and thought camembert. Right? So... And hopefully this week, hopefully this week, if you've got a little kid, you might have been around some ex nihilo of snow angels and sledding down the hill. I saw some of your Instagram stories, and y'all had kids in garbage bags going down hills. That's serious ex nihilo stuff there. You're making something out of nothing. So God creates ex nihilo. First thing we see in Genesis 1, we're doing a really fast overview because I'm cramming too much into this one sermon. Uh, first thing, ex nihilo. Second thing is, God creates in the chaotic space. What does that mean? Really quickly, uh, there's a guy named D. Hawk, and he works in the field of complexity science. And he coined this term, I think it's a cool word, chaotic and it's simply combining, let's go next slide, simply taking chaos in order. Next slide. And bringing them together. He's highlighting what he calls the chaotic space. Too much, if you have too much order, there'll be no creativity. If you have too much chaos, there's no creativity. It's in the overlapping space, what he calls the chaotic space. So too far on the left, chaos will soon spin out into collapse. Too far on the right, order moves to control. And he, and he calls this the space in between, this chaotic space. And that's where emergence happens. That's where creativity occurs. Now stay with me. Chaotic design is a process of how to walk through, up on this diagram, up through that chaotic space. And you know this, when you're working in uncertainty, when you're in complexity, either in your own life or in a group, when you do not know what the next step to take is, when you are stuck and lost, you don't even know how to make a decision. The temptation is to just go far left. Either chaos is hope, hopeless, we're never going to make it collapse, or way too far into control. And just we're going to just really tighten our grasp on this thing. And D. Hawk says, no, no, no. The magic is in the chaotic space. And he's got this great phrase, finding chaotic confidence. I love that phrase, chaotic confidence. This is staying yeah, so you move through the chaotic space and emergence, creativity, innovation is everything on the other side of that messy uh, chaotic space. Now, next slide. Chaotic confidence is the capacity then to stay in, to stay in the dance of chaos and order. If you stay in the dance, emergence will happen. Okay, that was super fast, maybe a little confusing. Here is why I think this matters. Genesis 1, what we see happening... God working in the midst of chaos. We see the Spirit hovering over chaos. We see God bringing order, not control. Okay, Creating a space and then actually creating a space for human flourishing. 
Later on in Genesis 1, it says God separates the chaotic waters and creates land in the midst of chaos. <laughs> separates the chaotic waters, creates land in the midst of that place. Why? So human emergence, human growth, flourishing can move forward. And this chaotic space, as we read the story, just keeps getting opened. The crossing of the Red Sea. Where there's no way, God makes a way. Land, poof, emerges so you can cross over. Most clearly seen, of course, on Easter weekend. So God's creativity is ex nihilo. God's creativity is through the chaotic space. And Genesis 1, as we continue our quick overview, shows that we're invited into this. So I don't want to spend too much more time on this because we, as I said, been here many, many times. And hopefully you'll remember something about the cultural mandate, where in Genesis 1, God entrusts the creation project to humanity, saying, carry it forward. Keep this going. Go and multiply this thing. Steward it. Be fruitful. Make something of the world. Keep going. So if then, this is my question this week. If this is the story and the trajectory of the story that we're called to participate in, then why does it often feel like the movement's going the other way? Why do things feel like they're often going in reverse? Here's what I mean. When my daughter was about seven years old, writes Howard Ikemoto, she asked me one day what I did at work, and I told her I worked at the college, that my job was to teach people how to draw. She stared back at me, incredulous, and said, you mean they forgot? <laughs> I'm talking about that backwards. If the story is about ex nihilo, if the story is moving through chaotic space that's very uncertain and risky and putting something out into the world, and God is actually saying, your job is to make, why does in my life, and in many people I see, why does the flow go the other way? I reread some stats this week that at the, average, the age of five, 90% of the population measures high creativity. By the age of seven, two years later, the figure drops to 10%. And the percentage of adults with high creativity, any guesses? 2%. I want to know about that flow that is going in reverse to the flow of the story we've just opened. Because we are talking about so much more than drawing. It may, for you, it may be at the core, drawing. <laughs> but, but we're talking about that and more. We are talking about your particular calling and my particular calling and the collective calling of this congregation. We are talking about what it is that I am and you are to carry forward. We're talking about rebelling against the move that goes 90 to 10 to 2. This is not the from to that we're called into. Okay? So this morning, I want to have a look then at the slanted line in between from and to. That slanted line is actually where all the trouble's at. <laughs> That's the trickiest part of making a from to shift. At last week, we said... When there's a from-to call, what lives in between every single time is wilderness. Egypt, promised land, yeah, wilderness right dead center. So this move, 
If you're interested in making a from to, always will mean a move into uncertainty and unknowing and risk. And that's the best stuff in life. Okay? So I want to open a text with you. And we're going to spend the rest of the morning here uh, in Matthew 14. Um, it would be great if, you're, if we kind of went there together. That way you can see for yourself. And I know many of you are like me. And when you get requests from the front, as soon as they come, you're like, I'm not doing it. Because um, someone asked me to. I get it. That in the same way. So that's fine. Matthew 14, verse 22. I would just like to read it and then, and then walk through it with you this morning with these from two questions in the air. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of them to the other side. While he dismissed the crowd, after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. And then Peter got down under the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, often this story is seen in two acts. And I, I think that's, a, I think that's a, a, a good way to see it. So the structure of the story, two acts. acts act one is mostly on Jesus. There's these three movements in that act of storm, fear, reveal. And then the second act, uh, this is a story about Peter, but historically also uh, interpreted as a story about the church. And that's call, step, hand. So just so you know where we're going. Okay. So the story starts here in a storm, and a chapter has just closed, an amazing season of Jesus' provision. Right before this, there's this, uh, you've, perhaps you've heard of this story, this like, absolutely bonkers picnic where Jesus feeds 5,000 people, okay? So there is a lot of momentum, but classic Jesus, they're still on the move. There's no settling. Now, I would have, in that moment, I can, if I was in the group, I would have been like, can we just take a moment to celebrate here, right? Maybe there's a lot of leftovers, Let maybe some snacks. Uh, get, everyone loves a good car, carb coma. Let's just uh, have some time together, retell the stories and enjoy this. And, and Jesus, though he's often into table fellowship and that kind of thing, he's not now. The text says Jesus makes them get into the boat and sends them to the other side. So, friends, this is a story of crossing over. We are in a from-to type of story here. But Jesus doesn't go with them. He goes up for some alone time, some time for prayer, some time for rest. And so off they go without Jesus. 
verse 24, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land. I like that little piece of location. Okay, so they're away from land. They're past the edges. They're into the unknown. A little frozen to uh, reference there. Into the unknown, and, and they're into uh, deep, deep insecurity. Okay, so that's where this is happening. And plus that, end of verse 24, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Obviously, less than ideal sailing conditions. They're in a storm. And the storm, of course, this is a pretty well-used metaphor. And I, and I think uh, it's a good metaphor. This is language that we use from time to time to describe a particularly hard season. This could be kind of like an internal blizzard of emotions. This could be the confluence of events that create the real sense that life and God are working against you. Uh, you may know or have experience in storms of the loss of vision and direction, or, or the loss of a person, or a belief system, or health, or a job, or a relationship, something that kept you grounded and anchored. But here you are in the storm, untethered, in the face of the wind that, by the way, is going against you. It doesn't matter how old you are. I'm sure there's some of you that could say, yeah, I've seen a few storms in my day. And because I know many of you, I know that some of you would say this morning, that's exactly where I'm at. So we come into this and we tread lightly. Verse 25 Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. And when the disciples... Well, let's just pause there. Walking on the lake. Okay, well... All kinds of questions here. First one, actually. Uh, I've, read, I've read stuff this week about arguing perhaps there was a sandbar. Uh, you know, like beneath the surface. Um, like, we're, you know, we're trying to get a, a modern mindset around this. We understand gravity and buoyancy. And so the history of interpretation with this text is very wide. How did Jesus do this? I don't know. He was fully human, fully divine. Yes. So I, I, I don't know the answers to the question. And to me, those aren't the most interesting questions. I, I, I think he walked on water. I'm, I'm fine with that. Uh, but that's not the, that's not the central question. Notice this, though. Jesus approaches them, but his presence is unrecognizable. Actually, it's misinterpreted. I mean, he's right there, and they're like, there's no way it's him. It's a ghost. They are no doubt wishing he was there. They want nothing more for, for him to be here now, but he's not. He's doing who knows what. He's praying. He's resting. He's just not here. And is that not the way it always is? I mean, when we're in the storm, when there's full resistance, the wind is blowing the wrong way, some form of the question begins to rise, where are you, God? And why have you abandoned me? So often, the presence of suffering is taken as a sign that God has left me. The presence of a storm not only obscures my vision, but it confirms my darkest thoughts. There's no way Jesus is out here. 
And yet Jesus comes walking on the lake. He's found them. He's in fact standing before them in the fog and they don't recognize him. It's a ghost, they cried out, out of fear and terror. I love that. I just love that part. So when you're in the, when you're in the storm, fear, that, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, that, that is the main thing that's, what, that's going on. If, we were, if you were in the midst of a storm and someone was to ask you, like, how are you doing, which is what people have asked me the last couple months, uh, how are you doing? If you wanted to be real honest, you could just give them a one-word answer. Fear. <laughs> what's, what's, what have you been getting up to? A lot of fear. Really? Anything going on? Any leads? Yeah, most of them to fear. Yeah. That's the main thing when you're in a storm that's going on. And perhaps you know about our, our fear responses. Our fear responses are important to, to fight or to flight or to freeze. Fear is our most primitive emotion. And it's a helpful response. Fear is good. It's for survival. Fear is good because it keeps you from harm. And without fear, you'd lead a very stupid and short life. Right? Walking into traffic, getting eaten by bears. Mm, that looks good. Mm, mm, right? <laughs> so fear, fear is good in that it alerts us to threat. Wake, wakes you up. It alerts you to all kinds of other things. I like how Steve Pressfeld in The War of Art says it this way. He says, are you paralyzed with fear? That's a good sign. Fear is good. Like self-doubt, fear is an indicator. Fear, fear tells us what we have to do. Remember one rule of thumb, the more scared we are of a work or calling, the more sure we can be that we have to do it. Love that. Fear is a helpful response. Fear is a helpful response except when it isn't. Except when there is no threat. Except when the fear is exaggerating the size of the threat. So there's the fear that you need, and there's the fear that you do not need. And there's all kinds of fear that you do not need and that I do not need. There's the fear of bankruptcy, poverty, insolvency, the fear of betrayal, the fear of being average, the fear of, of rejection or abandonment, the fear of being single all your life, the fear of being married all your life, the fear of failing to support your family, the fear of sacrificing your dreams for your family, the fear of being ignored, the fear of not having the right training or degree or qualifications to do that next thing, the fear of what would they do if you said what you really thought. The fear that your best work might be behind you and the fear that you never did find your best work to begin with. The fear of looking ridiculous. The fear of not being enough. The fear of being too much. The fear of failure and freefall. The fear of passing the point of no return. The fear of death and the, f and the fear of succeeding. There's so many kinds of fear all kinds of fear. And yet, fear actually isn't all that creative. Like Elizabeth Gilbert puts it, I somehow figured out that my fear had no variety to it. No depth. No substance. No texture. I noticed that my fear never changed, never delighted, never offered a surprise twist or an unexpected ending. My fear was a song with only one note, only one word, actually. And that word was stop. This is what fear does. It sticks you 
and it stops you. So this group of Jesus followers are in the storm. They're stuck in fear, and this is precisely where Jesus finds them. In verse 27, Jesus, Jesus immediately says to them, Take courage. It is I. And, or, or in other translations, most of them have it, I am he. Okay? Take courage. I am he. Don't be afraid. Now, there's so much going on here. I just want to notice a few, a few things with you. Something we can't notice in the English uh, translation, but that is in the Greek that's, I think, fascinating. There are, ni- there are about 90 Greek words on either side of Jesus' statement. There's 90. So this statement of Jesus is the hinge and it's dead center in this story. And so this is a crafted story and this is the point, the, the center. First, note that this is a creative command. Jesus' words give what they ask for. Take courage. Take it. Take it. It's here. Take it. Second, that, that phrase, I am he or it is I, the, the phrase is ego eimi. And, and that this is massive because uh, he's not just saying I am he. The, he. the he is an add-on in English. This is an I am statement. If you know John's gospel, I am statements are a, a huge deal. Why? Because these are disclosures of, of self-revelation. These are sclo- disclosures of Jesus' divinity. So Jesus shows up, says, take courage. Second thing he says, I am. This is not an ordinary hello. This is divine self-revelation, which I think is just wild. This is where you wanted to reveal that? You could have done this on land. And I, I guarantee you I would have been able to hear better. I would have been able to absorb what you're saying better. This is where you want to show I am he. And the third thing then is this courage sandwich. Do not be afraid. So in the storm, in the place of fear, Jesus arrives with the provision of the thing that they need, courage, and and, and a massive startling uh, revelation of his identity. Act 2, Peter and the church moves to call. Verse 28, Lord, if it's you... Peter replied, tell me or command me to come to you on the water. Now, what would you do if you're in this situation? Hopefully, you've had a little bit of experience in a canoe or a boat of some kind. So just use your imagination. It's not a big leap. It's before dawn. You've been out there all night. You are wet. You're not sure if you're on the edge of capsizing. You're afraid. This ghost man, you don't know what it is, has just shown up and says, I'm he. Like th- those are big words. Take courage. What would you do? I know what I would do. 100% I know what I would do. I would say, thank you, Jesus, for this very surprising lesson. I wish you could have timed things a bit better. We are in the midst of a storm. Would you please get in the boat and make sure our boat is safe, we could use another body to help us row to shore. Let's just like, 
let's manage this situation right quick. Peter, if it's you, call me out there. I don't know if Peter is an idiot or like a, a kinetic learner. I, I don't know what is, what's driving this for him. Call me out there. Why this little exchange? Why does Jesus even engage him on this? This seems so unnecessary. This is for sure inefficient. This is not optimizing time where we need it in the storm. There's no time for playing around. It's so unnecessary unless it isn't. Given what we already know about the deeps, the place of real and imagined evils, the chaotic waters, the place where chaos rules, the pit of every human fear, it's in this place that Jesus stands. Jesus walks into the storm. He stands upon the chaos and he doesn't succumb to it. There's a reason this is in all four Gospels. This isn't some sort of stunt or magic trick. This is a demonstration of Jesus' sovereignty, divinity. This is a statement, I am Lord of all. I stand in the place of chaos. I stand and rule over the source of every human fear. Jesus walks into the chaos, and he doesn't sink, and he doesn't swim. He walks. He walks right, see this, he walks right into the things we are always trying to paddle out of. And he, we're trying to get out, and he walks right past us into those very things. And so Peter desires not just to be a spectator, but a participant. If this is real, if you are real, I want in. Notice this, though. Peter doesn't say, promise me and I will come to you. Guarantee me incredible floating abilities, and then I will come. He says, tell me or command me. Now, Peter's learned what Jesus' words do. He's seen what these words do. They heal people. They cause a restart in their life. They cause some people who cannot stand to stand. So Peter is looking for these words. He's looking for a command. Because if he says it, it's safe. If he calls me, it's possible. If he invites us, then there is a way. So Jesus says to him, come. Other translations say, come on. I like come on. I, I would like if there's a little bit of sass in it either. Come on now. Like a little Texan in there. Come on. And I wonder if in that moment, now we don't know, I don't know, but I wonder if Peter initially was like, dang. <laughs> he actually went there. He called my bluff. I didn't think he'd actually call me out there. It seems pretty obvious this isn't safe or advisable. So it's that moment when God answers your big prayers. God, I, I want to know that you're in this. Your guidance. Help me to follow you. I want more adventure and risk. And would you open up opportunities to trust you, God interrupting? Ah, that's great to hear. Okay, let's do it. Come on. And so there we are on the edge. Our bluff has been called with a choice. So what do you do? You do what Peter did. You start with just one step. 
Now notice, Peter, he steps out and he walks into the storm and upon the chaos. There's two kinds of stepping. He steps out. So he steps out of the boat. He steps out of the container, the thing that got him to this moment. Sometimes the thing that's got you there will not be the thing that gets you to the next place. He steps out of that. He steps out of that which holds his life. He steps out of his source of security. I, I want to say boats are good, especially in this situation. It's an obvious thing. Boats are very good. This is good culture making, okay? And there comes a time. There comes a signal when it's time to step out of the boat. So a few things about stepping out. Have you ever done this? Have you ever tried to step out of a canoe, right? It is, it is never easy or graceful. So there is no way that Peter did this with any swagger. That first step, it doesn't have to be pretty. You just take it. The other thing is, every time you take that step, it's going to feel like you're stepping into something as solid as water. Every time. And stepping out will be lonely every time. Most stay in the boat. For whatever reason, it's your turn now to take a step. So Peter steps out. Peter also steps into. He's not just stepping out into chaos. There's something bigger going on. He's stepping into the company of Jesus. He's stepping into the chaotic space that Jesus is holding in this moment. Chaos and order at the same time. Now here's the thing that drives me crazy about church people, which I happen to be one. Church people don't tend to know how to hold chaos and order at the, at the same time. And so we want to smear order on everything. Just believe, it's, it's good, it's all good, it's fine. God works together for good. You, know, you add scriptures to it, but while denying the chaos, that's very, very real. Chaotic space has both of them. Jesus is standing in both, not denying either, but holding space saying, there is a way to walk even here. This is what Peter steps into, a chaotic space held by Jesus because Jesus is standing there, so can Peter. And now notice this. Peter steps then out and he steps into two things. The first thing he steps into is power. Power. Peter begins walking where he has no business walking. No hope of walking because he is walking with Jesus. The second thing is it doesn't last for long. He noticed the wind. He forgets the words. He notices the wind and the circumstances, and he begins to sink. And out of desperation, he cries, save me. Verse 31, immediately. This is the gospel's writer to say, uh, way to say, zero hesitation uh, in Jesus to reach out to those uh, who are sinking. Immediately. Jesus reached out, and his hand caught him. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? When he sees the fear, when, fear, when he sees the wind and the fear rushes back in, he sinks and Jesus is quick to grab the one who hardly believes. I think this is so good. It is hard to sustain faith day after day when the wind and waves are against you. 
So Peter is full of faith and unfaith at the same time. And it's okay because the story isn't about what Peter's capable of. He's not the one holding chaotic space. He's not the one who's making any of this possible. It's about who, what Christ is capable of. So when you step out, there will be some sinking and some saving over and over. They climb back into the boat. The wind dies down, and they find themselves saying, truly you are the Son of God. Now, there's the sense in this language that this isn't just pious talk. This, this is said with a sense of shock. Like, more like, oh. They're not trying to be theologically correct. They're just giving language to what they've experienced. This is actually true. Peter found out that Jesus could bear the full weight of his life. And his friends who were watching saw, yeah, I bet this would apply for me too. Yeah, Jesus can hold us. So, that's a lot. Thanks for staying with me, if you are still with me. Thanks for coming along through Matthew 14. Just a few things there of invitation. Just three words. First word about storms. You may have already seen this in the text, but this, I think, deserves careful underlining. Jesus didn't send the storm, and also he didn't spare them from the storm. He stood with them in the storm. There's some wonky theology about God sending storms. Okay, And if if you're in the midst of a storm, just... I don't know, stay in Matthew 14 and just see, Jesus didn't send it. It's not his design. I mean, nowhere in Genesis 1 does it talk about God creating chaos. He also didn't spare them. I mean, he sent them into it. He sent them out. He didn't spare them. He stood with them. Just a a reminder, you may know this, but you, you may need this to plunge further in. The storm is not an indication of God's absence or neglect. The storm is not an indication of what God thinks of you. God's love never fails. So this is important for those of us in the thick of it right now. I think this is important for artisan church. Whatever 2020 holds in 2021 and 2022. Those are weird numbers to say. Artisan church. I want to say to you this morning, you have always, always been a church that is so beautiful with those in storms. This has been a community. You have always been this way, that you are good with those on the edge of faith or who have no faith. You are so beautiful in this way. And so I want to say to you this morning, keep going. Keep moving. Second thing, is about fear. If you want to know creativity, if you want to participate in this story, if you want to know about change, you'll need to step out of your boat from time to time, which means this will require reevaluating your relationship with fear. You can go decades without any kind of like evaluate. Like this thing comes with me everywhere I go. It's in every conversation. Every place I go, there my fear is. 
And I've never thought about my relationship to it. Maybe 2020 is the year. What's the DTR? Right? Okay. Does people still use that word? Define the relationship? You know what I'm talking about, Dylan? No, you don't. Okay. Um, It's time to define the relationship with fear. I like how one author uh, puts it. He's saying, most of the things that I avoid, I'm avoiding because I'm afraid of feeling afraid. He says, because the negative outcomes of the things that I'm afraid of actually aren't that scary. Like, it's not that scary to speak up in class. It's not that scary to, to initiate a conversation with your boss. Right? It's not that scary to really care about the, the, the product that you're working on at work. So there's not a lot of risk there, actually. But it's the fear. I don't like feeling afraid. This author says, artists and leaders learn how to seek out that feeling. They push themselves to those edges, to the place where the fear lives. Why? Probably even if they don't use the language, because that's the chaotic space that you have to move through to find the creativity and the innovation. By exposing myself to this, I become more alive and I do work that I'm more proud of. So Seth Godin says, how do I get rid of the fear? Alas, this is the wrong question. The only way to get rid of the fear is to stop doing things that might not work. Stop putting yourself out there to stop doing work that matters. No, the right question is, how do I dance with the fear? Now, because this is my uh, last sermon, I was able, and I'm allowed, and I have permission. I don't know from whom, but I have permission to say some of my old stories again. And I'd kind of forgotten about this one, and I was digging through stuff, and I found this one. This was a long time ago with, with my kids, and Amy and I had put our oldest two in uh, hip-hop dance lessons, which, you know, one look at me, you can tell that's an obvious choice. Uh, love hip-hop in our house. And so they're on their way to their hip-hop dance recital, and as we're in the van, there are a lot of nerves. There's a lot of fear and apprehension. And so I had to find something to say. Now, there's often times as a parent where you hear yourself saying things, and you're like, that is absolute garbage, man. You, you are making stuff up. You just stop talking. You know? It's so embarrassing. Then there's other times you hear yourself talking, and you're like, I should write a book. Like, this is, this is gold. And the, honestly, this felt like one of those gold moments. I was, I was talking with them, and, I, and we were talking about fear. And I said to them, even Elijah, courage isn't about not being afraid. It's about doing the right thing even when you are afraid. And so we talked about the difference of trying not to make a mistake and then trying to have fun, just like leaning into the fun of dance. And then our middle son, who was, he wasn't even dancing, and it's always easier to get, like, pontificate when you're not the one dancing, right? So he's in the back seat, and, and it's strapped into his uh, child's seat. He's probably, like, three or four. And he says from the back, you really just have to dip your heart into the dance. <laughs> There's great wisdom coming from the back seat. You just have to dip your heart into the dance. And then my daughter turned and says, yeah, our hearts are like McNuggets. They're made for dipping. And so this morning, I want to say to you, artisan church, I've gotten to know you over these 10 years. I've had the enormous privilege of walking with some of you very closely. I think I have a decent view into 
what y'all are made of. And I want to say to you, y'all are made for dipping. <laughs> the collective heart of this community is like a McNugget. You are made for dipping into the dance. You've, you, this church has already been through so much change. You've already got a whole bunch of dance moves already as a community. Keep going. Keep dancing. The third thing then is about the call. And it's really the question, well, then how do we learn to dance with fear? And it's the creative commands of Jesus. This is a new thought to me. I know I need forgiveness. I know I need grace. I know I need guidance. I know I need love. I don't know if I've thought like Peter that the thing I most need is a creative command. That if he says go, then it's, it's all right. I can go. I'm waiting on a word. How do we dance with fear? We learn how to step out. We step from comfort to risk. We step from hiding to showing up. We step from the safety of cynicism to the adventure of trust. Artisan church, keep stepping. There is so much reason to fear. But everything I want and you want and this community wants lives on the other side of fear. All of the good stuff is there. And so the only way to get to it is to move through the fear, learn how to step into it. I like how one author said, courage is only the accumulation of small steps. So we can keep stepping because Jesus, even more, as the resurrected Lord, stands upon the chaotic waters of death. He says, okay, I've put the last thing to death that you have anything to fear about. The, the resurrected Lord stands on the chaotic waters of death and says, have courage. Do not fear. I want you to be the most free people in the world. Step into it. There is, in fact, a way to step forward, to step into the chaotic space, to claim your creativity. Artisan church, keep moving, keep going. So, a number of years ago, this is another old story, another years ago, we were camping in Oroville, Washington, right across the line from a Soyuz. And we were driving by this old wooded bridge on a back road. And we found a whole bunch of locals there. They were climbing over the railing of the wood and jumping into the, this very slow-moving river about 15 feet below. So pulled the van over, and we all got out to kind of witness this. And you watch for a while, and you think, yeah, I think it's jumping time. So naturally... I tore off my shirt and I swan dived in barrel chested aviation glory. No, I didn't. I crawled over the railing and I held on for a while, making a few jokes, buying myself a bit more time to pretend I wasn't actually scared. And then I jumped. And my kids wanted me to stay there to wait for them so they could jump. So I was waiting and coaxing and calling, and my friend Pascal went, and then a whole bunch of other kids started jumping. But my Eva, my Eva was clinging onto the rail. She was hanging on and contorting her body in every which way to get a leg down, hanging over, to hang backwards, to hang forwards. Every imaginable way she could put her body, she, she'd try, and then she'd go back over the railing. So I'd try and encourage her again, call her out, jump. I was trying to unlock her, find some sort of you know, motivation to, to, to get the leap because I knew she wanted to jump. Meanwhile, I'm below treading 
try and sucking wind. Like it's 20 minutes of treading water down there and, and just like, like it would be nice if you jump, but I actually freaking need you to jump or this is over, right? And so I'm hanging on, hanging on, and then she jumps. I don't know, she just does it. And it was this moment of slow motion glory of watching a girl, eight maybe, eight years old, face her fear, jump toward it and through it and into joy. And we cheered like crazy, like, like cheers. There are people on the other end of the bridge, strangers. Yeah! Why? Because fear so often wins, but this July afternoon it didn't. And the best part, when she resurfaced, she was right in my face, and she said to me, I kid you not, I want to do it again. <laughs> and that's the best part. When you face the fear, when you jump into it and through it, you land into joy and you become a little more fearless. So ours in church, when I've thought of like, what's, what's the thing I could say to you? God, is there a message? And, and uh, this is it. Ours in church, take courage. I am he, Jesus says to you. Do not fear. So may you be the wild ones who trust a wild wave walking God. And may you dance with fear. I mean, really dip into it. And may you move through the chaotic space. And may your confidence in Christ grow. May you be those weirdos who say, I'd never ask for the storm again, but I'd also never trade it for anything. Why? Because something happened to me in that storm. Someone happened to me. Someone found me and held me up. I can put the full weight of my existence on him. So I'm going to keep choosing curiosity over fear. And I'm going to learn how to do a little bit of wave walking myself. Partisan in church, I can't wait to see where you're going next. Keep moving.